Welcome to the Texas Legal Aid Legends Podcast, where we talk to leaders who helped create and shape the legal aid system in Texas. I'm Pete Gallego, your host for a glimpse into Texas legal aid history and for this project of the Texas Access to Justice Foundation. Today, we're honored to have with us Mr. Jim Sales, who has a long and uh, distinguished history as a member of the uh, State Bar of Texas. We had a, an opportunity to talk a little earlier about his leading role in the development of uh, what became the products liability area of Texas law, which wasn't even there at the time. But uh, one of the more, I think, uh, even critical things that still resonates today is your passion and uh, your commitment for the IOLTA kind of programs, the assistance, the legal aid, the making sure that people had access to our court system. Once the IOLTA program was created, you uh, appointed the IOLTA Study Commission that recommended making what was a um, voluntary program, making it mandatory. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That must have been a huge sea change for Texas lawyers when all of a sudden, you know, you could do this, but all of a sudden you're saying, oh, no, you have to do this. That is correct. It was a sea change, and it was anticipated when we made the recommendation that this would be a severely tested uh, leap. But we also understood at the time that the uh, system uh, voluntarily was not really working effectively as it had been anticipated it would and that there was a, sort of an inertia that had prevailed, perhaps, that kept law firms from voluntarily just participating because they weren't particularly well-versed in what IOLTA really was and how essential it would be to providing legal assistance to the less fortunate of our society. And so when we went from voluntary to mandatory, we had to overcome even within our Bar Association, the members who were involved in in the process, a certain built-in reluctance because it was mandatory, and lawyers almost in instinctively are repelled by anything that's mandatory. So we knew that it would be somewhat difficult, and we thought the court might be somewhat hesitant uh, to make that leap, but we thought it would be worthwhile, and we felt it was absolutely necessary. What are the, um, can you think of uh, some of the worst stories? I mean, what did you hear from lawyers? Uh, you know, they, they tend to be a pretty vocal uh, uh, bunch. Was there, uh, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, was there a lot of unhappiness, a little unhappiness? What, what was that like at the time? I wouldn't say there was uh, overt unhappiness, but there was a... Uh, reluctance to embrace the concept uh, because it was a commitment and lawyers were were concerned about several things. One, that it would be an interest account on their client's money, and they were concerned that this is what it would do to them, and it would be inappropriate to take money that rightfully belonged to the client, although the program did not actually do that. That was just a mistaken impression that lawyers had. The second thing was that lawyers, uh, by nature of what they do, generally are pretty busy people. 
a lot of demands on their time. Clients are demanding, courts are demanding, and to work that hard and then put money aside and have it, in in their opinion anyway, taxed, just sort of was counterintuitive. And so it was a sort of a program where we anticipated having to educate the people on just exactly what IOLTA was and that it did not in any way infringe on their client's property and it didn't infringe on them. It really was money that was opting out to the bank because it was a small amount for a little longer period of time or a large amount that was for too short a period for it to accrue interest to the lawyer or to the client. You, um, as I alluded earlier, I mean, you've had some success at uh, persuading courts and uh, and juries to view things in your way. How did you sell that to the members of the bar? I mean, did you go out? Uh, was it a lot of, of individual conversations? How 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 were you able to overcome that uh, that opposition? There were a lot of meetings held with uh, law firms to convey and communicate. Uh, there was a lot of uh, information disseminated in writing about the program, very detailed. Uh, the Supreme Court had issued some uh, advisories on it, explaining precisely what it was that would be required under the mandatory program. And once it's explained and put in writing very plainly and simply, it's pretty easily understood. And And that pretty well, I think, is persuasive that this was not in any way an imposition on the lawyer or the client. It was not in any way an infringement of their proprietary right to monies because it wasn't. And once that was sort of understood, uh, the lawyers basically uh, pretty much acclimated to uh, agreeing with the program and did not provide any real impediment. Well, we've talked somewhat about your involvement at the state level, but before you became uh, so active at the state level, you also had a direct impact in Houston. In fact, what became the Houston Volunteer uh, Lawyer. Lawyers Program was something that uh, was one of your initiatives. What what can you tell us a little about that and about the early beginnings well, of that Well, before program? Uh, that came about, I uh, was on the board of the Houston Bar Association, and I had been elected as president-elect of the Bar Association for the year 1980-81. And at, before I actually assumed the presidency, I had been serving by appointment of a prior president on the Gulf Coast Legal Foundation. I really, even though I came from a very modest background, very constrained resources, you might say, I had never really appreciated how pervasive poverty was. And the disadvantages and the problems it presents to those who don't have resources at all. I got my first real glimpse and understanding of it serving on the Gulf Coast board. And it was pretty uh, catastrophic to view from even afar. And that made me realize that several things. One, that the legal aid system that was under the federal government's aegis, had a poverty line in order to qualify for legal aid under the Gulf Coast system so low that anybody who qualified could not really have a job. They would, they would be disqualified because 
they were making too much money, even though it was way below what people could survive on. And so it struck me as one of the things I might want to do when I was president is try to institute a program through the Houston Bar to provide pro bono services to what we call the working poor, which were people who clearly needed legal help because they couldn't afford it, but who were above the federal poverty Probably. guidelines at the time. And so on that basis, we worked up to the committee a program, and over a period of little time, it I encountered some resistance on the board to engaging this because they thought it would be pretty uh expensive to uh, develop and provide. And they also thought there might be some reluctance on the part of the bar to uh, support the initiative. But I had pretty well determined that I was going to push it. And uh, in the end, they did acquiesce. And I think it was in March or April that we of 81 that we launched the program. And today it's a pretty uh, established program in Houston. Well, when you talk in terms, when you say they did acquiesce, I uh, have had the opportunity to work with you on several projects uh, over the years and to watch you, as you say, from afar. And uh, I'd say that when you're in uh, in full motion, it's uh, it's pretty hard not to acquiesce. <laughs> it's uh, You tend to be a pretty determined uh, person. Well, let me put it to you this way. A lot of lawyers have accused me on more than one occasion that I go from preaching to meddling pretty easily. <laughs> and I would say that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> well, uh, we're certainly all grateful for that, uh, for uh, not only the effort, but also the uh, the energy that you have put in. So you uh, were appointed by the Supreme Court for uh, what I'll call another, uh, another obligation, another tour of duty, so to speak, uh, when you were appointed as chair of the Texas uh, Access to Justice, Justice Commission? Commission. What did that mean to you? How did that? Well, why? 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 Why you? Why? What was your commitment to it at that point? Well, let me put it to you this way: the beginning of that was kind of strange. Uh, Kelly Frails, who was past president of the Houston Bar, approached me one day, and just as I was about to commence my retirement from the firm, from active practice, and go of counsel, and I was planning some long trips with my wife and take things kind of easy after 40-some years of practice. And he had lunch with me one day, and he said that the president of the Houston Bar, I mean, the state bar, not the, the state bar, Betsy Whitaker from Dallas, had asked the board for some names that the Supreme Court wanted, names of some people that the state bar would seriously submit to them to take on the commission chairmanship, that they had just initiated the, the new commission and, that they had grand plans for it, but it was going to take someone that was willing to really work hard. And Kelly presented it to me, and I was not particularly uh, enthralled with the prospect of taking on that job. So I said, well, I really wasn't interested. But if you know Kelly Frails, he's a very persistent character, and he kept after me. So finally I said, okay, let me study it, give me some material. And he did. He gave me some preliminary materials that they had worked up. And I looked it over, and it was even more ambitious than I had envisioned in my mind when I talked to him because they wanted to make this a statewide operation. And uh, the figures that they showed me in terms of the need was astonishing. 
mind-boggling, to be honest with you. And I told Kelly, I said, I'm really reluctant to take on. This is going to be a hard slog because I have to start from scratch and really structure this differently than I think it's structured currently. So finally, he prevailed upon me to at least meet with the Supreme Court. And I said, okay, I'll meet with I want the whole court. And I want the president of the bar and uh, the chair of the foundation and everybody that's got a hand a in this a yeah, role to, to be there. I want to I really exhaust this and un, get an understanding with myself as to what is expected of me. But also, after having studied this, I want to share my vision of what I think we have to do. And at the same time, I don't want to do this unless there's a buy-in by everybody. I mean a total commitment. So we spent two hours in chambers with the full Supreme Court, and we talked about it. And I, I had drafted a proposed five-year plan, which included the structure I would envision and the programs I would envision to be the first five years of the commission. It was pretty ambitious. And uh, at the end of it, I did almost all the talking and I asked the court what questions they had and they asked me a lot of questions. And finally, uh, after, let's just say, two, two and a half hours, uh, they said, well, let, let's do this. And I said, well, before I finally say okay, Judge, it was Chief Justice Phillips at the time. I said, Chief, I'd like to get a commitment from this court because I know that if I don't have the commitment of this court, this is really not going to work very well, I don't think. So I said, Chief, would, will you support this? I mean, as I've tried to outline it just in general without knowing for sure if it's going to work, he kind of looked stunned and said, yes. So then I asked each justice, I said, you know, would you agree with this? Will you support it? They said, yes, yes. You know, they looked a little astonished that I would be asking the court. <laughs> but they all agreed. And I said, okay, I mean, I'll, I'll take it on, and I promise I'll give it everything i got. And if you're unhappy with it, you know, I just ask me to leave, and I'll be happy to, but I'm committed. And they said, you got the chairmanship. Okay, just have at it. And that was the beginning of my tenure of some quite a few years. For those uh, listeners who might not be familiar with the work of the commission what tell us a little bit about the basics of what the mission was and after you left the chairmanship what you uh, what you feel were your your uh, most significant achievements as chair of that commission well i would say that the commission's objective was to develop promote and ensure access to justice for all Texas citizens, all the underserved, the unfortunate needy of, of our society. I think at the time I took this on, there were estimated to be right at 4 million that qualified. By the time I finished uh, in 2010, it was up to 5.6 million. Today, I'm not sure what it is exactly. It's probably close to 10 million. So it was a, a, a large number uh, almost uh, enough to uh, terrify you when you looked at it in just blank paper. Uh, the idea going in was I had given the court a proposed five-year plan, and in that plan it, I proposed a 
structure for the commission, and I had nine specific programs that working together would start to accomplish these missions of promoting, developing, and ensuring access to justice and promoting pro bono and legal services to all who qualified and needed it. And uh, that was the the objective, and that was the mandate that I felt I had uh, taking on the chairmanship of that. The um, road to um, success is not always a it's not always an easy one, and there were some, uh, in terms of actually the delivery of legal aid, there's certainly been peaks and valleys. One of those valleys happened in uh, 2008 when uh, interest rates uh, hit oh, a yes. historic uh, low. And uh, you're, you know, one of the sayings I remember you using regularly was boots on the ground. Correct. It was always, uh, it was always, we need boots on the ground. So I would say that it took someone with your experience of, of putting boots on the ground to, uh, to preserve that funding for, uh, for legal aid. And you, uh, uh, worked with the legislature to fill that gap yes. in IALTA funding. What, well, that what was one to, of the nine, nine programs that I had envisioned along with the other eight that they all dovetailed, but that particular program involved the legislative uh, promotion to increase the amount of funding available to all the service providers, both the LSC and the Houston Volunteer Lawyer Program and all the other bar association programs throughout the state of Texas. And that's a hard sell. The legislature doesn't spend money easily. Uh, you're telling me, Congressman, <laughs> you're telling me. Uh, well, in 2008, we had the beginning of the uh, recession, and which it culminated in 2009 as almost a disaster. Uh, our IOLTA program, which was the fundamental f- funding program of the Access to Justice Foundation, had been receiving roughly $20 million from the old account and the legislative contributions. When that recession started to hit, it went down ultimately to one either $1.75 or $2.5 million total. That is a huge drop. In fact, the floor dropped out from underneath it. So we were confronted with the 2009 impending legislative session, and we had no money. So I went to the commission. I said, we're going to have to go to the legislature with hat in hand. They're not going to want to do this. That's a lot of funding, and they are confronted with budgeting constraints themselves. The only thing we can do is say we're here for hopefully a one-time bridge funding program to help us make it through this recession one year. And so we would ask for a biennium, which would be a two-year grant uh, that they would give because they only meet every other year, of uh, $37 million, which would be roughly $20 million for the first year and 17 for the next. And that's how we started the session. We went and promoted it as a bridge funding mechanism and that we would do it just this one time and that if the legislature funded it, we would not be back to ask for a repeat of that funding. And while we were doing that, uh, Betty Torres, the... Uh, uh, 
person mm-hmm. who runs the foundation and I had several meetings and we discussed the possibility of getting the Supreme Court to ultimately not that year because we'd already submitted this to the legislature but in the fun future years to include our funding request to the legislature as a judicial budgeting item so that once it was implemented as a budgeting item of the Supreme Court it would be automatically renewed each time the legislature renewed its budgeting process and that would be their bottom line start so we met with Chief Justice Jefferson while we were doing the legislative meetings to see if the Supreme Court would maybe include this in their own request in 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 their budget and they they did and the chief was very very effective in promoting that and he has been one of the real champions of both the Alta program the access to justice program and the foundation and we were successful in the legislative session getting the budgeting accomplished and it got incorporated into the Supreme Court budget process. So we got the budget, and thereafter it would be included only as an item of the Supreme Court budget, the state court budgeting process. And every year now, or every two years, it has gone into the legislature in that fashion, and it has been effectively uh, budgeted. And that has taken a huge stress load off of the foundation and the commission because we don't have to go to the legislature and and fight, you know, every battle with each legislator to get that uh, supported. You know, raising money is always the the hardest thing to do. People people don't part uh, with that. And that's certainly true of the uh, certainly true of the legislature. But you also had phenomenal success at. At raising money from outside sources, you managed to get a lot of law firms and uh, a lot of people interested in the delivery of legal services uh, along the way. Well, I think once we could demonstrate to the people that we actually were putting boots on the ground, that we were making a difference in people's lives, we could demonstrate we were successful, that the program was working as advertised, the firm started supporting it. As most people would, you you want to see the product before you put money behind it. And we were delivering the product, not nearly in the amount that we should have or that we wanted to because we didn't have the funding, but we were delivering the product much more than we had anticipated because these other programs that we started at the same time were beginning to pay off. You know, the training of through the advocacy program, the, uh, the law school dean's committee that started getting the law schools involved in the summer internship programs, and then they started developing their own. Each individual law school started devising pro bono programs to service the environment in which the law school was located. And then they started, as they are doing now, requiring each law student to have so many pro bono hours of serving the poor as part of their curriculum to, to graduate. So when they go and graduate and go into the practice of law, they're already are attuned to the obligation of a lawyer to give back to the community as part of their moral obligation. And so all of these things are beginning to generate uh, responses, put boots on the ground, if you would. And uh, 
I got in a technology committee. I got the CEOs of the five largest law firms in Texas to be on the technology committee and to set a standard for every law, uh, Pobrona activity in the state to set a baseline for technology so that they all were operating from a common system. And then the bar, not the bar foundation, but the access to justice foundation got me the money, almost a million dollars to fund that effort. And and we did it in one year. Uh, All these things began to produce results because we were making it effective. We were getting people involved. They were getting interested uh, got the corporate counsel committee started. Got Charlie Matthews and the general counsel of Exxon. Got together with general counsel from other firms, other corporations. They started doing in-house pro bono in the corporations, which they hadn't done before. And we had asked them to see if they couldn't uh, do a partnership with their firms, the outside firms, to partner with them to do pro bono in the community. And they did. And we we expanded it in that fashion, slowly but gradually, and we did it all concurrently so that it's been mushrooming a little bit every year. What's your, as you look back, what are you most proud of with respect to your work in access to justice? Where, where, uh, where What would you point to as your single biggest achievement in legal aid? Well, I don't think it, uh, as I look back over it and, ruminate on it, I don't see any singular activity as being paramount in in my mind. What I see, though, is that each of these programs combined as a unit has begun to put roots down in each community concurrently, and that has propagated on its own uh achievement its own results and it's expanding and although none of it is expanding at the pace that any of us would like because the demand is so great for assistance but it has achieved so much more than existed i i can recall when we first started this back in 2003 late 2003 early 2004 uh, the LSC corporations were basically doing all the service. They still are doing uh, a lion's share of it, but they're getting an awful lot of help now from places like the Houston Volunteer Lawyer Program and the Dallas Northeast Texas Northwest Texas Program, San Antonio Bear County. They're they're all together making a huge impact. And although we're not totally solving the problem because the numbers are so great, the demand for legal services and help is so great in this country, and particularly in our state because we have so many immigrants coming in now and they all need help, that uh, the system is overwhelmed. But we have lighted the area with our little candles and, and it's beginning to be illuminated. And I see a great deal of progress occurring. And unfortunately, it is incremental. We can't do it in just one year. From my perspective, you've been a great mechanic in terms of helping to figure out 
exactly, you know, what the best way, the, the strategy forward. But truly, you can have great ideas, but unless you convince people um, that the ideas are worthwhile and worth investing in, you don't really get anywhere. And having been on the board of the Access to Justice Foundation since the early days, one of the biggest things that has happened in terms of changes is something that you and a few others uh, played a big role in. I mean, uh, the attitude toward legal services was uh, uh, not a very good one, right? They're all, uh, you know, they're, they're troublemakers, they're rabble-rousers. Why do, why do you want to give these people lawyers? If they have lawyers, they, they'll cause more trouble. If they, uh, you humanized it so that we talked about, uh, uh, you know, people heard about um, the veteran who came home. Uh, his family had been evicted. Uh, we heard about the hurricane victims whose uh, mm. apartment had been destroyed uh, during a hurricane, but the landlord wouldn't let them out of their lease, and so they were still paying for an apartment that didn't exist anymore. You and others really helped to change the perception, I guess, the uh, about legal aid. Uh, and so it went from being something that, whether it was the legislative system in Texas, which historically has been uh, very conservative to even the business community, uh, who initially were not very supportive of legal services. But you and others uh, really helped change that perception and change that attitude. Well, thank you. I, I think there are two things that I think may have been of some assistance, at least from where my viewpoint or perspective of what you're talking about. One is, of course, I was a partner in one of the large largest law firms in the state of Texas. And I guess that suggested maybe it was all, all right for lawyers from other firms to practice and do this kind of work, that it wasn't something that was beneath their, their practice, that it was something that was truly uh, a response to an obligation, at least a moral obligation, that a lawyer has to give back on the theory that, you know, a lawyer is, we're licensed by the Supreme Court of Texas. Uh, we're entrusted by our society and the only ones trusted to be the guardians of the courthouse. That means we have the keys to the courthouse. And if we lawyers don't provide these services, these people have no access, and, you know, we talk about the majesty and the supremacy of the rule of law, which I am a firm believer, and that is the essence of what this country is. But the rule of law is absolutely of no consequence. It's as if it, it doesn't exist if a person is so poor that even the constitutional rights and the rights of the state law that governs their lives it's not available to them. I mean, it can be the it can be encrusted in diamonds and gold, and it, it's worthless if they can't get into the courthouse to present those rights or those uh, provisions of the law that apply to them. And a lot of people just don't have that access. So that was one aspect of it. 
I think the other aspect was in structuring the commission the way we did, getting the law schools personally involved, getting corporate counsel involved directly, getting uh, computer technology experts of the big firms involved, uh, getting lawyers from other big law firms to serve on the legislative access board and work the legislature to support funding, those kinds of things create buy-in by the people participating and the firms that support that. And so, again, it proliferates from the participation of those who are part of the system. But you have to involve them actively, not just give money, because that's, that's not a personal involvement, a commitment. It has to be a commitment. And that's what I think is the importance, if you would, of the commission. It has produced commitment from the various segments that constitute the legal community of the state of Texas. And that's how you get buy-in. And when you get buy-in, then you get support. And I think that as we continue this, if, if the momentum continues, if the enthusiasm continues, if the people will continue to participate as they have done so far, I think that we can continue to grow this uh, effort that we have started and make it truly the shining beacon on the hill, as to quote President Bush used to say. And I think we can become sort of the beacon for the, the profession, perhaps, for many of the other states that still can look at us and marvel at how much we've accomplished compared to what they have. I think, you know, uh, the lawyers of the state of Texas have much to be proud of, but they need to step up and continue to support this effort. Otherwise, uh, like anything else, if you lose the momentum, you can kill the program. And so it's incredibly important that we urge our lawyers to continue to invest because it's not only an investment to help the poor, it's an investment for their own future as lawyers and for their law firms and for the society of which they're an integral part. It just, it's, it's a commitment that has to be maintained. And no one else can do it but each lawyer that has that license. Well, we've come a long way in the uh, 35 or, uh, or so years uh, yeah, uh, since the since the very beginning what what do you see um, as you uh, uh, look at the horizon what do you see for access to justice efforts in Texas you're asking me to look in a crystal ball which I don't have the capacity to really perceive uh, I'm not that that smart or that intelligent to understand but I believe that the need is so great and is increasing proportionally at a faster rate than we're able to increase our ability to serve that need. And I think that the people who possess the needs, who have the constitutional and the statutory rights and redress that are provided to them by their state, by their government, but can't assert them because they have no access to the court system without a lawyer. I think they're going to demand increasingly that they have access. If it's not by lawyers, then it has to be by some alternative system. 
but I don't think the status quo can prevail indefinitely. And I think lawyers individually, and I think our profession as, a, as the organized effort of our profession needs to think long and hard and seriously about this because I think at some point in the future, it's going to devolve as a responsibility of each individual lawyer to either help address this problem in a much more urgent manner than they're doing currently or some facet of the government is going to step in and at some point determine that an alternative system has to be worked out because the the demand of so many people has to be addressed. And if the lawyers are unwilling and unable to do this, then, quote, the government is going to have to figure out how to do a better job. And I don't think it's to the interest of society. It's not to the interest of the needy who need lawyers. And certainly it's not to the interest of our profession to have that occur. I think we are the best positioned group in society to solve this problem, but it's going to take each and every lawyer looking into his or her conscience and to their obligation under the oath they took when they became a licensed lawyer to decide that they need to be part of the redress, the remedy to help this situation uh, uh, resolve itself. This is a very profound, uh, very profound thoughts as you look forward. I uh, I have to say it's been a privilege to um, uh, watch you work and to work uh, with you both uh, in the legislature and uh, in Congress to move the ball forward on uh, on these issues. And we've not really talked about you as a as an individual, but. You're regarded as uh, one of the, uh, oh, I don't know, parents of uh, products liability law, one of the preeminent uh, <laughs> products liability people uh, in Texas uh, law. How did how did gym sales become uh, the gym sales that we uh, that we know today? <laughs> I don't know. I came from a very modest background and. Life has been kind of a struggle from the get-go, and uh, once I had a chance to uh, start as a lawyer, uh, I, I assume that you just run as fast as you can to keep uh, keep the man from behind catching you. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with some really great lawyers at the law firm, and uh, uh, two of them were uh, Bob Carsey and Kraft Eidman. Kraft Eidman, of course, was then head of the department, ultimately became managing partner of the firm, but he was my immediate boss, I guess, and my mentor, and as some would say, my chief tormentor when he wanted to be. And he pulled me into a case. I was just a young pup at the firm. and didn't even know where the courthouse was yet. And uh, we were defending one of the parties in a Braniff crash case in Houston that was, uh, plaintiff was represented by John Hill, uh, noted uh, Supreme Court Justice and uh, one of the best trial lawyers I've ever seen in the courtroom and his partner, Jim Cronzer, who was sort of the preeminent law lawman in Texas. And uh, they were trying this brainiff crash case uh, 
based on a failure of the product, and it was on a theory other than negligence, and they were trying to create a theory based on a commercial uh, theory called uh, uh, privity, uh, that if you sold a product, you had liability, and you could be liable even for personal injury that occurred from the use of the product. It was a novel concept, and there was only one state in the country, California, that had adopted that concept at the time in a case called Greenman versus Yuba. And so I, I was doing the all the briefing, and I was the gopher back then. I carried the briefcases to the courthouse, and I did all the paper filing and prepared trial briefs and all of that sort of thing. And I started keeping a notebook of the cases, and I became very intrigued with this evolving concept of product liability. And so as I kept that notebook, I started reading more and more cases just as they came out on the uh, various uh, periodicals from the courthouse. And I, I said, you know, I've got so much material that I've briefed on this, I think I'll write a paper on it. And I did. I wrote a paper, and from that paper evolved eventually sales on product liability in Texas. And ever since then, I've sort of been kind of involved. <laughs> well, we are privileged to, to have you uh, on our uh, program. We uh, thank you so much, uh, not only for being with us here today, but more importantly, for all of the work, uh, all of the effort, and all of the dedication that you have put in to uh, building the uh, legal aid system in Texas. I'm uh, Pete Gallego, your host for A Glimpse into Texas Legal Aid History for this project of the Texas Access to Justice Foundation. You can find the link to Legal Aid Texas Legends podcast at www.tajf.org. Thank you for joining us for this conversation with Jim Sales. <laughs>